All right. Well, I am pumped up about God's Word once again. It's a great privilege to be able to do what we do. My privilege to be able to study God's Word all week and then come and let you feed upon God's Word during this hour and our privilege to together take in God's Word during this time. And God's Word is very necessary for our souls. And so I hope that you have been taking advantage of this Old Testament survey to be doing your own Bible intake, the gift of literacy that God has given to you in this time and place, the gift of the Bible so excellently translated in so many different versions. It's really a rich treasure, and we will probably be judged based upon how we respond to those privileges, whether we have taken advantage of the privilege of having God's word or whether we have neglected it and been somewhat spiritually lazy and apathetic. For those of you that are reading through Deuteronomy, I think that this part of God's word has been a tremendous blessing. I would suspect that this part of God's word has been a tremendous blessing to you this week and last week. If you haven't yet read it, definitely set aside time this week to follow up this study, this introduction to the book of Deuteronomy with your own reading, your own Bible intake of the book of Deuteronomy. Perhaps the most important book in the Old Testament that can be backed up by data because it's quoted more than any other book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And also, as theologians take a look at the book of Deuteronomy, they have come to the conclusion, quite recently, they've been able to appreciate the book of Deuteronomy as the climax of the Torah and the richest theology, perhaps, of the Old Testament. Now, this morning, once again, we're not going to be using the video I continue to be disappointed by the book and the video that I purchased for this class. They seem to be more interested in what is written about the Bible than what's actually in the Bible. And that's a common mistake that you find with theologians and seminaries and even sadly pastors, is that we tend to just get so interested in the discussion around the Bible instead of just really loving the Bible itself. Not that there's not interesting discussion going on about the Bible, but that discussion about the Bible is not the food for the soul that the sheep need. Sure, we need scholars, we need people who are writing and talking about the Bible. There's a place for that, but not here. This is the place where we feed upon God's word as the sheep, not just talk about what people are saying about the Bible in academic circles. So I say all that because I want you to to understand that Most pastors are not being well-trained in the seminaries in order to feed the flock. They're being trained by guys who are not pastors, who are not really that interested in pastoral ministry, and who are more interested in academics. Now, nothing against academics. Like I said, there's a time and a place for that, but that's not where pastors need to be trained. Pastors need to be trained by pastors. And in my time at the Master's Seminary, I was pleased to see that pastoral emphasis was still at the heart of the seminary. Now, hopefully, that's still the case today, but sadly, over time, that tends to be lost, that seminaries start off training pastors, but then guys go through seminary, and they never become pastors, but they just become seminary professors, and then seminary professors are training seminary professors or training seminary professors, and the pastoral ministry is lost. And that, sadly, is what I think is evident in the book and the video that I was hoping would be a good basis for this class, but has disappointed me over and over. And I'll keep giving it a chance here, and maybe it gets better after the Pentateuch, but my hopes are are dying. But I really do appreciate the material that is put out by the Master Seminary. They have a video series of the Old Testament survey on YouTube, That was put out about 10 years ago. And so I was there in 1997 to 2000, and the video is about 2010. And so it's fun for me to go back and listen to my professor that I had in 97 doing the Old Testament survey in 2010 and still doing a great job of it. So I'm reviewing what I learned those 26 years ago in seminary each week, listening to Professor Essex talk about the book of Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch. It's been great. So a lot of what I'm sharing with you is Essex's material rather than what I had originally planned to use. All right, so let's take a look at the 
handout that I gave you. Each week we start off with just a general statement, a general summary of what the book is all about. And so there you see it's written, Deuteronomy is not a second law, but it's a reiteration, a second giving of the same law. So we're talking about the law, we're talking about the Torah, we're talking about the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. It's the foundational revelation of who God is and what his expectations for his people are. And so what we have then in these five books is one big book. At the end, in Deuteronomy, God is reiterating the law. He's explaining, as you see there on your page, explaining and exhorting based upon all that has happened so far. So all that you learned in Genesis about God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his faithfulness to those promises, all that you learned in Exodus about God's mighty power bringing the people out of Egypt and then bringing them to Mount Sinai and revealing himself on the mountain and speaking the ten words from the fire and the smoke. You go and you see Israel and their failures and their wilderness wanderings and their unbelief testing God in the book of Numbers. And then all that God taught the people about the law in Leviticus. And all that then is summarized in the book of Deuteronomy. And God drives home, here's what you should learn from everything I've told you so far. Because repetition is the key to learning. And God knows that. And so he repeats what is most important. And that's what Deuteronomy is. It's a repetition of the first four books of the Torah not really focusing on Genesis 1 through 11, but everything from Abraham through Moses. And he exhorts based upon the character of Yahweh. I want you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And here's a good example of the type of exhortation, the type of preaching, if you want to use that word, that Moses engages in in the book of Deuteronomy. I want to read Chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. Moses says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So that gives you a great representative sample of what is in the book of Deuteronomy, that God is exhorting us through Moses, through the prophet, on the basis of what God has done, his actions in history, in order to know the truth about who God is, and therefore be able to worship God in the right way, to serve and obey the true and living God. That's the heart, the message of the book of Deuteronomy, and perhaps the most important theology of the Old Testament, and the most quoted book in the New Testament. It really lays the foundation for the whole Bible here. Everything God did in the Pentateuch, now we're exhorted, it's explained. This is what you're supposed to get from this. This is what all this means. This is how you're supposed to respond to what God has done in history. And that's, that's theology. That's application. That's preaching, as we have here in the book of Deuteronomy. Now notice in that first paragraph I gave you on your handout that not only is there exhortation based upon the character of Yahweh, but there's also the expectation of disobedience or unfaithfulness. 
unfaithfulness, disobedience go hand in hand. If you're unfaithful to God, you're disobeying God. If you're disobeying God, you're being unfaithful to God. And so while Moses is exhorting the people of Israel, he's lived alongside of them long enough to recognize that they are a stubborn, hard-hearted people. And that though he is exhorting them that there's no reason why you shouldn't obey God, there's no reason why you shouldn't trust in God, there's no reason why you shouldn't be faithful to God, because of all this, yet I know you are going to be unfaithful. I know you are going to be disobedient. And so throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there's this expectation of failure on the behalf of Israel, which of course is what sets up the rest of the Old Testament. What's the rest of the story of the Old Testament? Israel's unfaithfulness to God, Israel's disobedience to God. So the book of Deuteronomy really is quite remarkable. And just that little snapshot there in chapter 4 really captures it well. And so then it says that this is the climax of the Torah. And it assumes the knowledge of Genesis through Numbers. So you can't just jump into Deuteronomy and read Deuteronomy. It's all part of the book. It's kind of like watching the last act of a play without watching the first three or four acts. That would not be good. You'd hear the climax, but it wouldn't hit you the way that it's supposed to hit you. Everything in the play leading up to the climax is what makes the climax so potent and so powerful. And so you have to read the Pentateuch to get to the book of Deuteronomy so that it hits you like a hammer. And you feel it, and you believe it, and it changes your life. That's what the Word of God is given to us for. So, What is the point of the Torah? What is the point of everything that God has recorded in the first books of the Bible? Know God and be faithful to him. The point is, know who God is and be faithful to him, to him alone as God. So let's take a look then at the title of the book or titles of the book. As we've seen, the Old Testament has both Hebrew titles and English titles. Our English titles come from the Latin Vulgate most often. And that's also the case here with Deuteronomy. So we know the book of Deuteronomy according to its Latin Vulgate title that comes to us also from the Septuagint. And the Septuagint called it the second law, and that's what it was called in the Vulgate, Deuteronomy, second law, that's what Deuteronomy means, Deutera, second, namas, law. But once again, don't think it's a second law, it's just a reiteration, an emphasis of the law that is what the Torah is all about, Right? The Hebrew title, though, is also quite good. Again, going back to the first words. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. And in our English translation, it's the same as in the Hebrew. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And so the Hebrew title is, These are the words. And that's a good title because it summarizes well the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, as we look then at the outline down below, has basically five words from Moses. He's got his first speech, you've got a second speech, a third speech, then you've got a song of Moses, and you've got the blessing of Moses before he dies. His final word is a word of blessing, just like Jacob, Israel's final words, before he died, he blessed the people of Israel. So Moses, before he dies, he blesses the people of Israel. And it's nice that God's final word in the book of Deuteronomy is one of blessing, one of grace, even though there is this expectation that the people of Israel are going to disappoint and fail God. God's blessing will not be undone by mankind's unfaithfulness. God will be true to his promises to Israel, and they will be blessed. Even so, after all these thousands of years of disobedience and unbelief. All right, so... These are the words is a great title because that's basically we have five different speeches or words from the lips of Moses that he wrote down and then became the end of the Torah and it came into its final form. All right, so let's take a closer look at the outline and the structure. We'll start here with the outline and structure. I've been making use of Swindoll's and you'll see the similarities between what I got from Essex. But basically, you've got these three divisions here because he's putting some of these last words together. But you've got the first word, looking back. That corresponds to the first word on the first speech on your outline on your handout. And he says, looking back, and I've got past, looking to the past there, to the right of the first thing on the outline there. And then the second one, chapters 4 through 28, he's got looking up. He stops at chapter 26. 
about here, I've got through 28 for the second sermon. And looking up is the present. Now they're about to go into the land, and they're looking up to God, saying, God, what do you want us to do when we go into the land? How are we supposed to live in our present? So Moses reminds them of their past. He talks about what God's expectations are for their present, looking up to God for those expectations. And then looking ahead, a great way to summarize the last part of the book, with the blessing and the curse at the end of the third sermon, and then the song of Moses, which is very prophetic, and then the blessing of Moses, which is also very prophetic, is that looking ahead. So that's a great way to think about the book of Deuteronomy. Looking back, looking up, looking ahead, or past, present, future. And that's what I've got there on your outline as well, the past, present, and the future. Now, the Song of Moses is a very important part of Deuteronomy. I wish we had time to read and study that in detail, but you'll have to read it on your own, and maybe someday, a year or two from now, I'll come back to the book of Deuteronomy and preach a series on the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is probably one of the most preachable books of the Old Testament. And since I've done Isaiah, and I've done a number of Psalms, it's only fitting that at some point we get back and and do a series on the book of Deuteronomy. And this week of reviewing Deuteronomy has re-emphasized that to me and put it back on my radar. All right, so the location, everything occurs on the edge of the promised land. And you can read the exact location there in Deuteronomy chapter 1, as you've got your Bibles open there, that it's what Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizhab, 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. So that's the place. And then he tells us the time in verse 3, in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month, very specific, 40th year after they came out of Egypt, the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and, and then that is the introduction to this first sermon that is looking back on what God has done. So the location, the time, that's all right there in chapter 1. And the location details are all very ancient names, once again signifying that this actually does go back to the time of Moses. Moses isn't talking about places that were future names of these places 700, 800 years later. He's talking about the names that were in use during his own time. And then the fact that it gives us the exact time, once again, shows us this is not some later Israelite making up. You know, what would Moses have said after all that happened in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers? Let's write some sermons and say that they're from Moses, and we'll put it here at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And of course, that's what the liberal scholars think of the book of Deuteronomy. They don't think, wow, this isn't actually Moses speaking these things, but it's some later Israelite who's composed a great sermon that he just put in the name of Moses, and it got put in here in the final form of the Torah. And I only mention that to you, I waste time mentioning the the stupid ideas of liberal scholars, because eventually you'll come across them at the university or even in high school sometimes, or you'll have an atheist friend who's going to argue with you about these things. And so it's good to at least be aware of how unbelievers look at these things so that we can start to think through, well, what's the right way to defend the biblical truth of the book of Deuteronomy? But that's another time, another place. I'm not going to focus on apologetics right now. I'm just mentioning it for future purposes. So we've got the location, we've got the time, and the theme, very much consistent with what I had at the top of your paper, remember to love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. And those go hand in hand. Loving God, keeping his commandments. This isn't something new that Jesus came up with. Not like the Old Testament said, well, you just got to obey God and love has nothing to do with it. And then Jesus came along with this revolutionary idea, to love me is to obey me. No, this goes all the way back to Moses, uh, all the way back to the beginning when God was writing down his word, that to, to love God means you obey God. And so much, I think, of, of our Christianity is based on feelings, but God is not going to judge us so much based upon our feelings. He's going to judge us more based upon our obedience. Your obedience is the yardstick by which your love for God is measured. And you can have wonderful feelings about God going on nature walks and singing hymns and really feeling close to God. But if you don't obey God, you don't love God, no matter what your feelings say about the matter. So that's what Deuteronomy is. Remember to love the Lord your God by keeping his commandments. These are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. 
and then some great key verses and think, pictures of Christ in the book of Deuteronomy. So I, I like how Swindoll did his Old Testament survey. If you're looking for supplemental material, um, what you're getting here on Sunday morning, you can find all of Swindoll's Old Testament survey online, and he does a great job of making it pastoral, making it practical, and not like the Seminoids who are just interested in all the scholarly stuff. All right, so let's take a look then at the themes and the purposes of the book. Number one, God's choice or God's election. It's good to use that word election because it's a word that's so misunderstood and so much disliked. But as we go throughout the scripture, we find that this is an emphasis, this is a focus of scripture from beginning to end. It's a good word. We need to learn how to love it, not be uncomfortable because uh, we you know, have feelings about the freedom of the will or things like that. But instead, just recognize that God chooses. Sure, you want to talk about man being free? I can say that man is free. But, but if man is free, God is more free. Okay? If we have free choice, God has more free choice. And God's free choice is more important than our free choice. And let's keep that in mind. That God chooses. God acts. God is the one who is determining what happens with the people of Israel because of his will, not because of man's will, not because of who Israel is. That God is a person. He thinks, he acts, and he is the most powerful, the most decisive person that could ever be or we could ever imagine. So God's choice, God's election is a key theme throughout the book, and particularly God's choice of Israel that God has elected Israel to belong to him in a special way. That's really what the Torah is all about. God chooses Israel and makes them a special nation for him. So God's choice is key. So over 280 times throughout the 34 chapters of Deuteronomy, you've got Moses talking about your God or our God. Mostly your God, but a number of times also talking about our God. So this idea of Israel having a unique, special relationship to God because of God's choice, because of God's election, that is a key theme in the book. And this is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that God chose Abraham, God chose Isaac, God chose Jacob. And God's choice of the patriarchs and his faithfulness of his promises to the patriarchs is why Israel now has this special relationship with God as being his elect nation. Now, not only does God choose Israel, but also in this book, a couple of things that are worth pointing out, is that God chooses a place for his name to dwell. Turn with me to chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. Now, I'll mention again in passing what the liberal fools say about the book of Deuteronomy. They say that when it comes to the book of Deuteronomy, that it must have been written later than the time of Moses, because in Moses' time, the people of Israel would not have been concerned about a central place of worship, but that this was something that, according to their understanding of Israelite history, was developing later. And it's not until you get to the time of the kings of Israel, where Jerusalem is the city of David, and the northerners are not part of the southern worship, and they're setting up their own high places to worship. And then there's this push among the prophets of Israel that, no, you have to worship at Jerusalem. You can't worship among the high places. And so they say, well, the book of Deuteronomy must have been written during that time of the divided kingdom when there was this push among the prophets that there's this central location of worship that you have to worship there because they have this evolutionary view of religion. They have this evolutionary view of the Bible. And so they think, well, Deuteronomy shows signs of being later in its evolution than the time of Moses. So you see how this evolutionary mindset ruins everything. It just filters in everywhere and poisons the well so they can't see, they can't reason, they can't think because of their basic presuppositional errors about the nature of reality. So I don't want to waste a lot of time arguing with them or talking about that. I just want you to understand how they view it and why they view it that way so you can get to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is you have an evolutionary view of religion that is this humanistic, man-centered, and really is, is not a faith in God but is of the essence of unbelief. And so why waste time with, with such foolishness? Repent and believe in God. Now, 
the choice of God for a place for his name to dwell is especially evident here in chapter 12, but you will find it throughout the book. But I just want to read verses 1 through 14 and you can catch the flavor of what I'm talking about. It says, These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Now, once again, notice Moses is talking about statutes and rules that you need to obey. You need to be careful to do. And that careful to do, that's, that's an important phrase throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It, notice that the exhortation is based upon how they're supposed to live in the land. All the days that you live on the earth, in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers. That's going to be a key theme here when we get to point number four is the land. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose... In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Get the point? Now, just for a moment, let's uh, do a little apologetics and say, just because the people of Israel didn't obey this doesn't mean that God didn't command it from the very beginning. There's many, many commands in the Torah that Israel never obeyed and that the prophets have to come back to later and say, you need to observe my Sabbaths. You need to stop worshiping on the high places. You need to obey the law. You need to put away your idols. This is what God is going to say throughout. Now, if you said, well, just because the later prophets made a point of a central sanctuary, that means this book of Deuteronomy has to come from the period of the later prophets. Well, does that mean that the Ten Commandments had to come from a period later than the time of Moses and in the later prophets? Because the prophets also talked about how they need to put away their foreign gods. And so maybe that's all later. And so you just see how foolish the thinking is here. That makes sense in their mind, but it makes no sense once you actually analyze it with sound thinking. So God is going to choose a place for his name to dwell. And it's not just Jerusalem. He starts off with Bethel, where the tent of God is set up, the tabernacle that they constructed. And though the people of Israel don't do a good job of traveling there and offering their sacrifices and obeying the law, doesn't mean that God had not chosen a place and that he was not doing this from the very beginning and that Moses anticipated it. One thing you're going to find out as you read through the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses is a prophet. I know, right? And that he's going to anticipate a lot of the things that are going to happen in Israel's history. But because the unbeliever doesn't believe in prophecy, he thinks, well, Moses can't have anticipated it. It must have been written after. And so Deuteronomy came much later because we don't believe in prophecy. You see, it's their presuppositions that cause them to go to their conclusions that they have. It's not the data itself. We have the same data. And according to a presupposition that God is real and that he can actually speak about the future through prophets, well, then you have no problem with the book of Deuteronomy being the words of Moses. But if your presupposition is, well, God is just a social construct and there is no such thing as prophecy, well, then you're going to come to the conclusion that the book of Deuteronomy was written much later. It's not rocket science. It's just a matter of presuppositions. All right, so let's get down to then the choice of a king. 
Not only does God choose Israel, not only does he choose a place for his name to dwell, which we know will be Jerusalem. Spoiler alert, if you're reading through the Bible for the first time. But also, we have the choice of a king in chapter 17. Come with me there. Chapter 17, verse 15, is where God speaks of this, but we'll pick it up in verse 14. And so here you've got laws concerning Israel's kings. Once again, the unbeliever pipes up, Oh, there were no kings back in Moses' time, so he wouldn't give laws about kings. Moses is a prophet. God is telling him what's going to happen in the future, so he's going to tell them laws for the kings. He's laying out the law here at the beginning. So, here's the law for the king. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Notice that. Whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then he goes on and talks about other laws for the king throughout the rest of the chapter. But notice the choice of God, the election of God. Key theme in the Torah, key theme here in the book of Deuteronomy. You'll notice that. A lot of the key themes of the individual books go throughout the books and maybe we're highlighting one here or there among the Torah. But remember, the Torah is one book. And so the themes of Deuteronomy are really the themes of the Torah. So secondly, along that same line, you have the attributes of God. This has been the big idea of the Torah is to teach us about the attributes of God. In fact, go with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Let's turn back to Exodus 34. Now, we're not going to a different book, per se, but to an earlier part of the first book of the Bible, the Torah. And as we go back in the book of Moses, the law of Moses, to Exodus 34, you remember that a month ago when we were here, we pointed out that Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, are the most important verses for understanding the character of God in the Bible. It lays the foundation for who God is that is going to be talked about throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And it would be a fun assignment for you to do, if you had all that extra time to study God's Word, to go from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and find every time that a later prophet, either in the historical books or in the prophetic books, goes back and makes a reference to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. That this is what they go back to over and over again for their foundational understanding of who God is. And so let's read it once again. Exodus 34, 6, and 7 says, The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the, the Tetragrammaton, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands. That word steadfast love, you notice that's used a couple of times. That's the Hebrew word chesed, which is that word for covenant faithfulness, loyalty. God is true to his promises. So that's the key theme of the Torah. God is faithful. God is steadfast in his love, even though people are not steadfast in their love towards him. We disobey, we're unfaithful, but God is faithful and he keeps his promises. So the problem in our relationship isn't God, the problem in our relationship is us. That's what we get from the Torah. So he's keeping steadfast love, chesed, for thousands. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, whatever you want to call it, he forgives it. But, notice that, but, who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the first thing you need to know about God, merciful, loving, faithful, true, trustworthy. The second thing you need to know about God, just, righteous, vengeful, jealous. And that same emphasis, that same dual emphasis is what we find then, of course, in the book of Deuteronomy. The first one I put on your list there is uh, that God's attribute of jealousy so go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 once again, where we started off in our intro. And we have a key verse here in Deuteronomy 4 about the jealousy of God. Now once again, when you think of the jealousy of God, jealousy in this context doesn't mean envy. God is not envious of us. He's like, oh wow, I wish I had what you had, Alan. You're such an awesome person. I'm envious of you. That's not what we're talking about here. When we're talking about the jealousy of God. We're talking about the more traditional idea of jealousy. And that is the, the type of feeling that a husband and wife have for each other. 
that I don't want another man making moves on my wife, and I would be jealous, I'd be angry if a man did try to take my wife away from me and draw her into an immoral relationship. And that's the way it is with the soul's relationship with God. God and the soul are supposed to be like a marriage together. God and Israel. God is the husband, Israel is the wife, and for Israel to be drawn away to worship other gods is like a wife being unfaithful to her husband, and God feels jealous anger when that happens at the woman and at the idols, the, the demons behind those idols, who are drawing them away from the worship of God. And so there's a proper jealousy. If a man was not jealous for his wife and a wife wasn't jealous for his husband, as you have some of these open relationships, there's something wrong with that. There's something not right in the head of people who have that view of marriage. And that's not the way God is. God doesn't have an open relationship with his people. God has a jealous relationship with his people because there's only one God. We belong to him and he is for us. And that's why it says in Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. There may not be a stronger emotion than jealousy. There may not be a stronger emotion than jealousy. God compares it to a fire that burns. It talks about in the Song of Solomon how anger is a, a flood, but that jealousy is a fire, and it burns. And so that jealousy is what characterizes the attitude of God towards our soul worship. And that's why the Ten Commandments start off with, no other gods before me. And when he says before me, it's more of the idea of like in my presence. That you're my holy people, we live together, we dwell together, I don't want any other gods here. Like you come home as a husband, you don't want any other husbands when you come home. I'm the only husband here. No other husbands in my presence. Get rid of all those guys. It's just me and you. And so that's the way God is with his people. He's a jealous God, a consuming fire. Now, I put a bunch of other verses. Obviously, we don't have time to look at them all, so let's keep moving. Faithful, chapter 7, verse 9. Come over to chapter 7, verse 9. If people would just try to understand what Christianity is before dismissing it, they would make a lot more progress towards the truth. But a lot of times people are just looking for an excuse to dismiss Christianity and they're not trying to understand it really at all. And that's not being wise or fair-minded or open-minded like they claim to be. Faithful. Here we have chapter 7, verse 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Yahweh, your God. Remember who talked about 280 times? It says your God. Well, here's one of those times. Yahweh, your God, is God. None other. And he says, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There's our phrase steadfast love again. Remember that translates the Hebrew word chesed, key word in the Old Testament. He keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's exactly what God said in Exodus 34. It's burned into Moses' mind. And he starts to tell the people about God. And he's like, remember, God is the God who keeps chesed to a thousand generations, just like he told me when he passed by and proclaimed his name. But also, verse 10, he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. That's powerful language. Somebody wrongs you and you might go sulk in a corner. And you might be thinking, well, I'll find a way to get back at him someday. God's not some weakling sulking in a corner finding, I'll get back at him someday. No, God goes to the face of the person who has wronged him and says, okay, here's who I am, here's who you are, here's how you've treated me wrongly, it's time for justice. So that's who God is. He repays people to their face. So reading the Torah, it gives you knowledge of God that is sorely lacking among Christians and Christian young people in our world today. People should be ashamed that they have no knowledge of God, that their pastors have not preached to them the knowledge of God, but that they've gotten distorted and twisted image, a, a sissified God that is not who God is at all. You don't want to underestimate the faithfulness, you don't want to undersell the love and the grace of God, but don't forget, God is the God who repays those who hate him to their faces. He will destroy them. He will not be slack. So the jealous God, the faithful God, the loving God, the gracious God, the judging God. That's what you see 
from all this. All right, that's enough on that. You can look up some of the other verses if you like. The number three theme, the requirements of God. Okay, so God has acted in history. This is who God is. Therefore, this is what God expects. This is what God demands. This is what God requires. You learn about God's actions in history, that he's a person who chooses Israel. He's a person who saves Israel. He's a person who acts according to his own will, his own choices. And then you find out, well, who is this God who has done these things? In light of the God who acts, and in light of his character, therefore, the requirements. The requirements, fear, love, obey, serve. Really four ways of saying the same thing. And they all come from knowing God and trusting God. Fear him, love him, obey him, serve him. Let's go to chapter 6. That's probably the best place for us to capture all of these in one shot. The great Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is in verses 4 through 9. But let's go ahead and pick it up in the very beginning of the chapter because there you see on your handout that I've got fear listed in chapter 6 verse 2. So we'll catch that on our way to the love and the serve in the Shema in verses 4 through 9. Now, chapter 6, verse 1. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. There's our word fear. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to fear him. What does that mean? Well, look up all the verses on fear that I gave you, and you'll get a good idea of what does it mean to fear the Lord. He explains it. He's very good about that. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. How do you fear God? You keep his commandments. There's other things too. If you look through all those verses, you'll find there's other ways to describe the fear of the Lord. But here's the one that he keeps coming back to, the main thing. Fearing God, loving God, they're both evidenced by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful. That phrase, be careful to do. I put that on the handout. Careful to do is used over 20 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Be careful to do. Be careful to do. Be careful to do. You go online to BibleGateway.org and you type in be careful to do, and you're going to get a lot of hits in the book of Deuteronomy. It's all over the place. Be careful to do. All that the Lord your God has commanded you, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. So, notice this. You got the land, the multiplying, the blessing. That sounds familiar. We're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. How is Israel going to experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, through the covenant at Sinai, Israel will experience those blessings through obedience. Now they fail. There's the exhortation towards obedience, but there's the expectation of failure. And they do fail. And so they don't get the blessing. They don't get the land. They get exiled from the land. They get cast out of the land. And they, instead of multiplying, they all get killed in battle and enslaved. And so their ability to obey God is shown to be lacking throughout the Old Testament. That's why the covenant at Sinai is replaced by a better covenant. See, God's promises to Abraham are not going to fail just because people can't obey him. God is going to bless Abraham because he said he would. Now, they haven't been able to get those blessings through the Sinaitic covenant, so God brings a new covenant. And it's in the new covenant then that God's grace is made manifest and that the blessings that God has promised to mankind through the nation of Israel are made available to all mankind. So you start to see how we're supposed to read this and we're not supposed to go back in time and say, well, if I really want to be blessed by God, I need to obey God because that's what the Mosaic Covenant said. No. Now we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. And so we don't get blessings through obedience. Instead, we get blessings through faith in Christ. And by your faith in Christ, then, you are going to be saved in order to be able to obey. Not that obedience is no longer important. Obedience is still the way that we show love towards God, but it's not how we get blessing. We are blessed so that we can obey. You see, it's a different covenant. It's a different way of God 
administrating his grace. That's what dispensationalism is all about, different ways throughout history that God has administered his grace. And so the book of Deuteronomy is still very important and teaches us very important lessons. But you are not an Israelite on the plains of Moab. You are not living before Christ. You are living after Christ. And you relate to God through the new covenant. This is written for you, even though it's not written to you. So you have to translate this dispensationally in your thinking according to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, so that you learn from what is written, but that you relate to God through what our relationship with God is determined by now, the New Covenant. So just an important note there about Old Covenant and New Covenant. All right, so be careful to do. And then we, we get to the Shema, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh Elechenu, Yahweh Echad. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. See, loving and obedience have always been together in God's economy. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The the word of God, the importance, the significance of God's word in the heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Now, did they do this? No, they didn't. That's why we need the new covenant so that we can be born again, so that we can be the people whose God's word is in our heart, and we talk about it with our children when we're walking around and driving around throughout our day. Teach them diligently to your children. Now we can do this. We've been blessed so that we can do this. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right, so... Fear God, love God, obey God, serve God. Those are the requirements of God based upon who he is and what he's done. And then finally, I wanted to emphasize for you the land. And I've got a lot of great verses there on the land, but for time's sake, let's just go to chapter 4. We spent a lot of time in chapter 4 today. Chapter 4 really has a great emphasis here on the land. Just look at verse 1. Now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes. Well, that sounds familiar. He keeps saying that over and over again. Listen, obey, observe, be careful to keep the statutes, the rules that I am teaching you, teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. So the land is a part of the Abrahamic promise. How are they going to take possession of the land? Through the covenant at Sinai, the covenant with Abraham will be fulfilled if they obey. They'll get the land blessing if they obey. If they don't obey, they'll lose the land. So the Sinaitic covenant is administrating the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You see that with the emphasis on the land throughout the book of Deuteronomy. This is looking to the present. We're about to go in, and this is how we're supposed to live in the land so that we receive the blessing of the law and not the curse of the law. And for that, I want you to turn to chapters 27 and 28. Come with me to the end of the book. It's fitting that we get to the end of the book here at the end of our time this morning. Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Here you've got the blessing and the curse laid out before the people for the second time. This isn't the first time you've had the blessing and the curse. We didn't have as much time to look at it when we were in Leviticus. But Leviticus 26 is paralleled here in Deuteronomy. It's a reiteration of the law. And so when God gave the law at Mount Sinai in Leviticus, they had the blessing and the curse. Now, with the second generation, God is reiterating all of that with another instance of the blessing and the curse at the end of Deuteronomy. And these chapters are key. If you don't have time to read the whole book of Deuteronomy, make sure you at least get Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and 32 to 34 also read. Very key, important chapters here at the end of the Torah. Of course, you would imagine that what comes at the end of this huge epic is the most important part of the whole thing. It's all been leading up to this. And so, very picturesque there with them standing on Mount Ebal and the Levites reciting the curses and the people answering back, Amen, there in chapter 27. Then you get into chapter 28 and Moses gives the sermon based upon that and starts off, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. And he goes through and talks about all the blessings in the next 14 verses that God is going to give to the people of Israel if they obey. And there is a measure of obedience in Israel's history. 
They don't completely always disobey, but they do experience some blessings based upon obedience. But more often than not, the blessings they experience are just because God is being gracious in spite of their lack of obedience. The blessings are a rather short part of the chapter compared to the curses for obedience. Turn the page and it just goes on. It's like, wow, this is a long chapter, 68 verses, because there's a lot of curses. And that's the expectation of failure. He's exhorting them to receive the blessing, but he's expecting that they're going to receive the curses. That's why the curses receive a lot more detail than the blessings do. And the curses are actually much more representative of what happens to Israel in her history than the blessing. So read those chapters, key chapters there. One verse that I'd like to point out is about rain. In chapter 28, verse 12, you look at verse 12. This is the blessing part. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land and its seasons, and to bless all the work of your hands. So God is the one who's going to send the rain as a blessing, as opposed to Baal, the rain god, the storm god. Instead of looking for blessing from the idols, you worship and serve God only, and he'll give you the rain. Remember how the land of Israel doesn't have a river that waters it like Egypt and Assyria did with the Mesopotamia, with the land between the rivers, but that the Holy Land depends upon rainfall for its agricultural produce. Now, if you go to Israel today, they've employed a lot of technology to try to avoid the need for rainfall, just as we have in America, employed a lot of technology in order to make us a little less dependent upon rainfall, and they've done the same in Israel. But at this time, historically, they were completely dependent upon rain, and so God lets them know, if you obey me, I'll send the rain. But you look at verse 24, just one example here of the curse, commensurate with the blessing, and he says there in verse 24, if you disobey, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. You're going to get dust instead of rain. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are covered with dust. Very picturesque of drought. Think of the dust bowl here in the Midwest back in the Great Depression. That is what God was saying would happen to the people of Israel as he cursed them. All right. Well, we're out of time, but let's take a quick look just at the interpretive issues. The structure of the book, uh, this gets back to the interaction with the liberals who want to see similarities between the book of Deuteronomy and ancient law codes and treaties. And of course, there are similarities between the book of Deuteronomy and ancient law codes and treaties, but there's also differences. And it's not important that you become an expert in the similarities and differences between the book of Deuteronomy and other ancient law codes. What's important is, is that you learn what God is communicating to you in the book of Deuteronomy in its context. And that's what we should be focused on. You know, the law code of Hammurabi or the treaties of the Hittites, all fascinating stuff, definitely something that scholars should be involved with, but not what I'm going to focus on with you here as we are feeding upon God's word. We're not studying it as academics. And then secondly, the nature of the covenant in chapters 29 and 30. And there, I'm already open to chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant they had made with them at Horeb. So this covenant versus that covenant, just what is the nature of the relationship between the covenant in Deuteronomy versus the covenant that he made at Mount Sinai? And so we could get into a lot on that. You can write a whole book on that subject. But uh, just wanted you to be aware of the issue. Thirdly, can the law be divided between moral, ceremonial, and, and civic? Does the moral law carry over to the new covenant? What's our relationship to the law of Moses, and how do we apply and interpret it today? Uh, again, many books have been written on that subject, and there's a lot of different approaches. Perhaps if I, if I would choose to, we'll take time next week to get into some of these interpretive issues and give you more time to get the book of Deuteronomy read and get a start on Joshua. We'll see.